welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that typically asks Colgate University community members 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of talking with the George R. and Myra T. Cooley Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies and Professor of Geography, Daniel Monk. Professor Monk is an expert on critical geopolitics, the Israel-Palestine conflict, and critical theory, which, according to Google, and correct me if I'm wrong here too, is to understand and help overcome social structures through which people are dominated and oppressed. I think that's pretty Is that close. fair? Yeah. All right. Monk is the author of An Aesthetic Occupation, The Immediacy of Architecture and the Palestine Conflict, published by Duke University Press in 2002. Welcome to Crisis, Notes for a History of the Popular Histories of the Arab-Israeli War of June 1967, published by Grey Room in 2002. And most recently, he co-authored The Global Shelter Imaginary. IKEA Humanitarianism and the Rationalization of Rightless Relief with Andrew Hersher. Professor Monk earned his bachelor's degree at Columbia College of Columbia University, his master's from Columbia University, and his PhD from Princeton University. And today we are going to be talking about his new book. So, Professor Monk, welcome to 13. Thank you so much. All right. Um, so I have a couple questions about the book, and I did find quite a bit of it very interesting. And I think I just want to properly introduce, um, I guess, the whole frame behind it and the critique of um, the, the global shelter here. Um, so according to the book, the global shelter imaginary – and I'm just abbreviating there, but the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, estimates that approximately one out of every 97 people on the planet is now displaced by war, persecution, or catastrophe. And it goes on to read that at the end of 2019, 79.5 million people were counted as dispossessed, yet only 4.2 million have attained the status of asylum seeker. If those no numbers sound large, it's because they are. Professor Monk writes that the dispossessed of the present per surpasses the number of people cast adrift at the end of World War II. How did we get here? That seems like such an incredible number. And you think about the world wars of the past and how, you know, the migrations that resulted from that. Um, it, is it something that just isn't talked about among? Um, well, I think um, th there are a couple of really important things to think through here. The first is that, yes, roughly the numbers are, are, are a bit greater than those in World War II, at the end of World War II. Um, but there are two huge differences between now and the end of uh, World War II vis-a-vis -vis the dispossessed of, of, of the planet. The first is that um, in, in the aftermath of World War II, uh, it was politically expedient for uh, many states to guarantee that that displaced population would be um, repatriated to the countries that they had that they had left, or be given asylum in other parts of the world. Um, that was in part to do with the burgeoning logic of the Cold War, but it was also more than that. Uh, by 1951, um, the United Nations had brokered a international refugee convention that most of the powerful states of the planet had signed in which um, uh, in which uh, which called for and in which states committed themselves to essentially um, 
recognizing, to, sorry, re, the, it, it called for protection, which basically refers here to maintaining or guaranteeing the legal protections of citizens lost by virtue of their of their displacement, by virtue of their being turned into refugees. And the other is assistance, which the other function was assistance, which refers to the fact that um, people would not be left in limbo um, in camps for eternity, that the job of the convention was to guarantee that people would either be returned uh, safely uh, to the places that they'd left, permitted to settle in place. For example, if you sought asylum, if you were in a camp in France, you might be permitted to stay in France, or resettled in a third country. Uh, this was what they called the search for durable solutions that were going to guarantee that there wasn't going to be a, a huge proportion of, the, in particularly of the European population, that was going to be left in a kind of limbo. That was also considered to be a pretty significant security concern. Mm. The difference between that condition and now is that uh, very few states have an interest in ameliorating the condition of the people who are in camps today. Uh, or displaced today. And in fact, the numbers that you read out at the beginning of our conversation are in fact much larger than what you what you suggested because um, policies that have been enacted by most advanced democracies and uh, Western states in particular um, have generated a condition in which people seeking asylum are never in a position to actually be able to claim it. Under the Refugee Convention, for example, um, it very and under international law, it's very clear that the status of a refugee is akin to that of a person jumping out of a burning building. If someone basically jumps out of a burning building and lands on your balcony, that's not trespassing. Um, All right, fair. Um, yeah. um, but what's happened... Uh, in the course of really since the end, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, is that states have actually begun to treat that that process of seeking entry for the purpose of making an asylum claim as a criminal act, mm. and more than that, they have begun to externalize border controls. By which I mean that states essentially begin to manage their border controls far beyond their own borders so that people are never in a position to claim asylum to begin with. And, you know, there, for example, in my courses, the, the example I give of this is um, France. If, you, if any of you, any, anyone listening to this travels to France for fun or, or, or for a vacation, they might be interested in knowing that there are pretty significantly large sections of Charles de Gaulle Airport that have, through legal fictions, uh, been decreed to not be France so that people seeking asylum wouldn't be able to. Oh, wow. And the U.S. has done this by essentially creating border management regimes uh, that are basically subcontracted to Mexico. Australia does this by diverting people coming and uh, seeking to make a asylum claims on Australian territory to Manus Island. Um, this is prevalent. So that was a long-winded answer to yeah. your, your initial question, but uh, that, that gives you a sense of the flavor of the conditions that we that we live under now. Hmm. Where are most refugees now? Is it a European uh, primarily, or is this something that is just widespread at this point? That's a great question. Um, in reality, the majority of refugees are not in the European 
continent. Many of them are seeking to gain access to Europe for the purpose of making asylum. But the majority of the world's refugees are are fleeing conflicts that um, actually connect to the United States directly. Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and um, Somalia. Um, In the case of Afghanistan, Iraq, and to some degree Syria, we see what the immediate connection here is. In fact, there are those who argue uh, in my line of work that the that the that the civil war in Syria that led to uh, you know to refugee flows is itself a not, is in, in geopolitical terms a um, cascade effect of the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, because Iraq Iraq was so destabilized that then there were ISIS moves into Syria and other things begin to happen separatist forces in Syria and as a result when by that by the time that Arab Spring type protests civil rights protests in Syria begin to take place. Um, the place, you know, it was obvious that there was going to be something on this scale. Mm. In the case of Somalia, um, essentially, um, uh, the United States had, for during much of the Cold War, had uh, propped up an authoritarian leader. And the civil war that that he was then displaced in the civil war that ensued is a direct effect of the process that began after the fall of the Soviet Union, whereby proxies of the Cold War end up becoming, um, you know, really problematic sites and people seek security wherever they can find them. So many cross over into, many Somalis crossed over in the border into Kenya, uh, et cetera. So um, the interesting part of this is that the that the majority of refugees are not actually hosted in Europe. Mm. They're they're actually they're basically being hosted in Africa and Asia, Turkey, um, uh, and the efforts to reach Europe are are largely connected with efforts to seek asylum from uh, because the the countries that they ha- that they live in are insecure and uninhabitable for many. Mm. So what is the global shelter imaginary? I love that title for the book. I mean, it does make the the mind kind of wander. And I, I love um, also the design. The IKEA colors uh, goes really well with it. And it kind of gets to the, the basis of this partnership with IKEA and uh, UNHCR. But um, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Um, the, uh, and it actually connects very well with um, the process that I was describing to you earlier about the ways that states in the present – um, essentially are seeking to abrogate right their obligations under the refugee convention and subsequent protocols that were added to it. There's a way in which states, on one hand, recognize that they're obligated, on the other hand, seek to not, not to do this. And so the global shelter imaginary is directly connected to this. The global shelter imaginary is the way that, um, at some level, by a kind of tacit common consent, a kind of percolating sort of common sense um, uh, actors in the broad humanitarian order basically seek to represent the problem of the refugee as if it were merely a problem of shelter. Mm. And of course, refugees require shelter. But by representing right the problems that the displaced on this planet face as if it were merely right a problem of having better kinds of housing, 
What is essentially taking place is a situation in which the limbo in which they are essentially, in which they're often housed, is is rendered somehow permanent. Mm. And, and the best analogy I can give you between that will sort of explain what I, what we mean by the global shelter imaginary is that it's kind of the refugee management equivalent of greenwashing, right? In the environmental sphere, we all now are familiar with the concept of greenwashing, whereby private actors and even institutions basically make big claims about how they're pitching in, in a context where they're actually not, hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, you know, oil companies making, you know, c claim that they're actually engaging in transitions to clean energy, uh, co-opting particular non-governmental organizations to make it seem as if they're actually creating institutes in all of these kinds of things sure. that fund fund kind of pseudo-activity that in point of fact is just uh, greenwashing their own continuing exploitation of carbon resources, right? The global shelter imaginary is very much the same idea that we, by talking about the improvement of the types of shelter construction that are being now be, being now developed in partnerships between private foundations and the UNHCR, the status of refugees is actually being helped when by any metric, any metric you wanted to choose, everything is materially worse. Mm. Everything is materially worse. And um, the last thing I'll say about this is that um, in reality, it's not only is it kind of, kind of greenwashing, it's actually doing something that we argue is politically problematic. Why? The, 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 the conceit of this new kind of hut, you know, that's been produced by the partnership uh, of IKEA and uh, an IKEA-sponsored social enterprise and the UNHCR is that it um, it has a lifespan of two years. And that was chosen very carefully um, uh, in order to uh, show how essentially it's aware of issues that surround uh, around surround housing for 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 refugees. But in point of fact, the the problem of the refugee relative to housing is not about time. It's not about the scale of time. it's it, it the the question of time is actually nothing more than an indicator of a political paradox that can't very easily be resolved. And this is what I mean. If, in fact, we wanted to house refugees for the same $1,000 that it costs to produce a better shelter, this new, this IKEA device, sponsored device, you could actually give people the money and the resources and they would build themselves far better permanent housing. Oh, interesting. Far better. Hmm. Anywhere on the planet. But the reality is, is that if they were, if one were to do that, one would immediately run up against the roadblock of sovereign states refusing to let people essentially settle, refugees settle on their territory. The provision of permanent housing basically signals, right, that you're allowing them to remain, mm. which is something most states are not prepared to allow, right? At the other extreme, the provision of tents, UNHCR standard issue tents, which are, in terms of cost efficiency, far better than these shelters, is essentially a, 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 a 
in a context where people may actually be required to stay more than two months or three months of their lives in a, sh- in a tent, an abrogation of human rights. Mm. And so between the demands of human rights on one hand and the demands of state sovereignty on the other, architecture can't solve the problem, right? The problem remains political. Any effort to suggest that these, these kinds of technocratic solutions will square the circle end up being a, a kind of, well, yes, greenwashing in, in, the, in mm. the humanitarian sense, a kind of ideology. Can you talk about the background? Like how did this partnership, uh, how did it happen and why? Like why did IKEA help with the shelter that ultimately uh, in your uh, analysis isn't, isn't really helpful at all? Right. Uh, another great question. Let me just, in, in the interest of full transparency, or I, I have to let you know that uh, Andrew Hersher, my colleague, my co-author, and I are in many ways in the minority hmm. in in the kind of critique that we level against this uh, this policy. Um, if you were to look, uh, if you were to Google better shelter, what you would find is praise upon praise upon praise, and so. That was actually what interested and prompt, interested us and prompted us to begin the research. How is it that this particular little project, right, um, essentially uh, consumes so much space in the attention economy? After all, there are only 17,000 of these things deployed on the planet. Yeah, they, drop in a bucket. Yeah. yeah. And yet they take up a lot more space in terms of the attention economy than than you know than anything that they're actually doing on the ground. Um, so that's an that's an important factor. I think the answer to the question that you're you're asking about this partnership is I don't know exactly how they got together. Mm. Um, my suspicion is that it happened through the social enterprise called Better Shelter itself. They began to think that they needed to develop some sort of this other, this little third body. Wanted to come up with a kind of universally replicable refugee shelter. Uh, they're Swedish. They <laughs> um, they at some level probably got they, they sought out assistance from uh, the IKEA Foundation in the logistics of flat pack technology mm-hmm. to be able to ship these all over the world, and IKEA. Uh, to some degree independently and uh, in some degree not uh, developed its own foundation and its own aims regarding how it wanted to assist people on the planet and entered into a partnership with the UNHCR. Uh, To date, as far as I know, IKEA, the IKEA Foundation is still the largest private sector partner of the UNHCR Hmm. in the planet. What all of that signals is actually a fundamental and huge transformation in humanitarianism. Humanitarianism used to be done by intergovernmental bodies funded by by governments. Um, In the last generation, what we've seen is a transformation in which much of what is happening in the humanitarian order is labels itself smart humanitarianism, by which it means the adoption of market-driven models to the provision of aid. And and as a result of this, what ends up happening is that um, private actors like IKEA and intergovernmental actors like the UNHCR look to one another in order to borrow legitimacy in particular spheres. What I mean by this is 
IKEA could be giving money to wherever it wants in terms of refugee management, but in order to get legitimacy as a, 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 as a social actor in the sphere of refugee management, it needs to partner with the UNHCR. The UNHCR has been accused of being this kind of plodding behemoth, unable and unwilling to actually react nimbly to a change to a changing world order and uh, emerging crises. And so a partnership with IKEA begins to sort of make it look like it is delivering just-in-time inventory, just like the crappy bookshelf that you bought six <laughs> weeks ago, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there is a kind of social capital is the way we would describe this that essentially is, um, uh, is traded for by these kinds of public-private frameworks, frameworks that has entered into refugee management at the expense of, in our argument, at the expense of what would actually be common sense refugee management that takes into account the actual conditions of refugees. And so you asked earlier, what is the, what is the global shelter imaginary? The global shelter imaginary is the way that today in the present world, we subordinate the refugee to their representation, to the ways that we choose to, to represent them in, in, in you know, IKEA's website, in the, all of these articles that praise the better shelter, in the UNHCR's claiming that you know, innovation is the way that we're actually going to contend with the situation, at the very same moment when they're running like hell from attending to the fundamental problem of refugee management, which is that states are abrogating their responsibilities. Interesting. I mean, I, I imagine um, IKEA has quite the PR arm, and that's probably why you see a lot about it online. Um, and for folks who um, don't know anything about these shelters, can you paint a picture? What sure. do they look like? Why were why did they make them like they did? Yeah. So to give these, you know, uh, very nice people at the better shelter uh, in in uh, in. In Sweden, you know, they're due. They sought to arrive at what they thought was a good idea, which is to is to achieve economies of scale in the provision of um, uh, emergency shelter provision, post-emergency shelter provision is what they call it. So in, in the immediate moment of the emergency, nothing will beat a tent ever. Mm -hmm. um, and they work. Um, but... Um, if you're going to be there a while longer, then somehow or other there's a question about whether that's a viable solution for you, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, um, and so they sought to apply um, architectural reasoning, design logic, as it's called, to, um, to the provision of a universally replicable uh, post-emergency shelter uh, that would be um, – pay for itself because of the economies of scale. Once you start to mass produce these things and pre-position them all over the planet, they begin to become cost effective. Um, and again, to their credit, they absolutely are committed. Better Shelter agreed and committed itself to making this thing become open source. If you can meet the specifications and produce them for under $1,000, the UNHCR will buy them. Hmm. Um, in case there's an enterprising Colgate student who, or alumnus who thinks that they can, that they can, you know, do do a better job. Um, so what it is is essentially two big boxes. Uh, two, you know, basically imagine you are taking home from IKEA two big boxes in which your bed comes. Um, these are shipped throughout the planet, uh, though the majority of them are in Europe, and you. 
it requires four people to move each of these boxes. And uh, those same four people can then take the pieces of, that are inside of there with the same confusing pictograms through which you build your sofa and essentially have a hut um, uh, uh, up and erected in about four to eight hours, depending on uh, you know where you are. Um, it is basically um, tubular metal um, uh, framing, and then it has plasticized insulated panels that snap lock in place the same way as, you know, a, a coat. Hmm. Um, it has a little door. It has a door with a plastic lock that you can slide. It has a window. Uh, some of them have now have, you know, tiny little um, um, solar uh, panels that basically will power, will recharge your cell phone. Um, this is what we're talking about. Um, uh, they take great pains to speak about the ways in which these devices are actually a significant improvement in security and well-being. Um, but in our analysis of um, their own media, right, in their own films uh, praising these, these devices, um, what we see is this very interesting sleight of hand whereby the safety that IKEA and its partners are talking about when they're speaking about this is basically domestic safety, the kind of safety that Americans worry about, is my neighborhood safe, will someone break in? Mm -hmm. And when you hear the people talking about why they like it, what they're speaking about is not that kind of safety. They're talking about the fact that, well, here no one is bombing me. And so the status of the dwelling itself has nothing to do mm -hmm. with it. Uh, refugees and the displaced are sp speaking about political security. And part of the work of the Global Shelter Imaginary is to sort of reframe people's concerns about political security as if it were really about domestic safety. Mm. So, I mean, on on the surface, it seems like such a great thing, mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, this is amazing. I know, I hate to burst the bubble. Right. I think this is what attracted uh, me to it. I, I really, um, you know, when you look at it, it's like, oh, this is so much better than a tent. Um, what do you think would be better? Um, how would that money money be better spent, that $1,000? Is it better to just buy a bunch of tents? Or is it better that that money be invested into something that would help these refugees in the long term? I think, their... yeah, you know, um, what you're bringing up is something that has been discussed extensively by uh, people in the field of critical humanitarianism. And um, and I want to sort of let you know there's a name to what you're talking about, which is the lesser evil principle. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, like, you know, it's kind of like, hey, Dan Monk, you come with all of your criticism against these guys, but what have you got to suggest, right? And part of the problem with the kind of lesser evil arguments is that it suggests that there's incremental improvement. Okay, at least we're doing something, right? But if we actually look at this in terms of the big picture, this is actually aiding and abetting a process that's going in the opposite direction. So me calling that out, I think is an important political act that doesn't require me to come up with a better solution, right? I, I, in other words, what I'm saying is if I basically pull the fig leaf off of this process, I think it's an important political intervention um, uh, 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 in, it, in its own right. Um, the, other, the other sort of dimension to this is that where, where should energies and money be spent? In political solutions. Um, 
after all, what the Global Shelter Imaginary does is to basically attempt to represent a political crisis, a political conundrum, as if it were a technocratic challenge. And I want us to refocus our attention to the fact that the problems that you're seeing on the planet, what we're calling a kind of migrant crisis on the planet, is actually a political problem and not a technocratic one. It's not about better housing. It's not about giving people better apps. <laughs> it's not about any of that stuff. Um, it's about the fact that we are living in a world in which the frameworks of international agreement concerning asylum protections are on one hand being acknowledged formally and de facto being abrogated. So um, I think that debate needs to take place. Either we need to arrive at a different understanding of what constitutes the obligations of, of, of states towards the displaced, um, or we need to um, reinforce the one that exists now. Last thing I'll say about this really important point that you've just raised is that it would be utterly irresponsible of me to refer to this issue without bringing into it, you know, bringing the question of race into it. The refugee population in Europe that existed after World War I was largely white, um, and all of them were essentially repatriated or resettlement, resettled, except for a last million, most, you know, and, uh, and a significant portion of whom were Jewish whom nobody wanted to take back into Europe. And so there are all sorts of interesting historical situations here. Or a better example I can give you is during World War I, a huge proportion of the Belgian population ends up in Holland, and nobody had a problem with it, right? Holland took in a huge number of Belgian people as refugees. Eventually, most of those returned back to Belgium. Wasn't considered a crisis in that sense. Um, the global refugee crisis is a refugee crisis because we have a situation on the planet where brown and black people are seeking security in a white world. And, um, and this is the challenge that, that we have to sort of contend with openly and, and, and honestly. Um, the barriers exist in a particular direction. And as we're speaking now, Russia has basically engaged in this process of acknowledging these breakaway republics, uh, recognizing these breakaway states and statelets of uh, Ukraine. If things continue further, we're going to see a refugee crisis in Europe, in Poland and other places of, of Ukrainians fleeing Russia. I guarantee you that the frameworks of the 1951 convention will all be applied towards that population. So, I mean, I, I'm willing to make a bet. Bring me back if, okay. and, and, we'll, <laughs> and we'll see whether that's that's whether I'm wrong or not. But there's there is something quite important to be thinking about here when it comes to questions of race. Mm. How long has this um, partnership uh, been going on now with with the UN and IKEA? Um, I, uh, I think. Uh, over ten years now, around ten years now, though the, the, it's been it's been changing. Uh, one of the things that, and again, I'm not an expert on the IKEA UNHCR partnership. You might want to talk to one of their representatives. <laughs> um, but one of the weird things that happened um, while we were doing the research for this book is that we were we had the presence of mind to archive 
the websites that we were landing on, the web pages we were landing on, because who knows how long certain things that they say are going to be kept up. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, what we just what we we wrote about this in the book, the 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 ways in which IKEA was rationalizing the IKEA Foundation was rationalizing its involvement in particular ways um, uh, was consistent with the philosophy of its founder, who on the web pages basically made clear that he had a very clear idea of the ways in which the IKEA Foundation should be doing its work. It was a kind of bar. It's borrowed from Adam Smith's cycle of prosperity, uh, but essentially he had this kind of. Um, I forget what he called it, a cycle of something else, whereby education to housing to work, these are this is the cycle that leads to the good life, mm. right? Entirely, entirely absent from his idea of the good life in the webpage that was archived are rights. Um, and this was all in the framework of refugee, you know, assistance to refugees. Um, at this point in time, I think... IKEA Foundation is less involved in the production of better shelters. That's already going on in its own. And most of this has got to do with childhood. Now they're focusing more on childhood issues in camps, um, lighting, infrastructure, these kinds of issues. What has the UN said about your critique? I, you know, I, I doubt they know it exists. If you'd like to give them a call, I'll be very happy. Even negative publicity is, um, is good publicity. Well, I, I'm curious. I know, uh, you know, we've had uh, Professor Ellen Crayley on, and she works yeah. a lot with refugee populations. Yes. Have you folks uh, uh, discussed that length? Uh, she's been incredibly supportive of the, of the work that I did, even though her approach is ra- you know, quite different from mine. Um, uh, and, you know, this is the difference, I think— as I, I think I would frame it as a difference between someone who's engaging in, uh, we're, we're operating in two different frameworks. Ellen is involved in actively, uh, uh, pragmatically uh, seeking to uh, contend with the, the, the order as it exists. I'm trying to figure out how it justifies itself to itself. And these are two different projects. But she's been incredibly supportive and it's been fun to talk about it. That's neat. I guess what what's next? Like, uh, where does where does this research lead you? Does it lead you to to something else, or do you feel, think that kind of closes the door on um, your your look at this subject? No, we're, we're actually um, working on a bigger a bigger version of this book now, um, and we're going to probably change the title to uh, something else, but. Um, after we finished it, we realized that there's a lot more empirical detail that that could go into this. Mm. This book was produced for this series at the University of Minnesota Press that asks you to produce little books that have the main argument and you know in advance of all the elaboration. So um, that's great, but um, but there's a lot more detail that we simply had to sort of just refer to it and not cover in the course of writing it. So I'm actually quite excited about, you know, getting deeper into the weeds with this. Um, um, yeah. So, yeah, that's, uh, this is going to, this is, there will be a round two of right. this. And and I suspect that, you know, depending on what's happening with European wars and, you know, uh, et cetera, that that may actually be part of the process. Um, uh yeah, sadly, uh, much more to come. I think yes. on that subject. Yeah. I actually like the little book quite a bit. <laughs> I, I feel like it, it's um, for for academic publishing. Uh, it makes it a little bit more welcoming and a little less uh, 
I guess, terrifying to, to dig into? It's incredibly hard. It's much harder to write a regular book than it is to write that. Um, uh, we joked that sometimes we felt like refugees packing a suitcase because, you know, you, you have to, you really have to put so much into so little. Um, but it was a, it was a really, really interesting experience. How did you land on this topic? Like, where, where, how did, what brought you here? Uh, you know, uh, many, a number of years ago, my, my, my collaborator, Andrew Hersher and I, um, uh, had written another piece on refugees, and it had to do with this very strange situation um, connected to the to the um, U.S. invasion of Iraq, where in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, um, what is rumored to be the longest inhabited city on the planet, Erbil, um, which has a central citadel, um, uh, uh, you know, which was a central citadel that was always about providing refuge, right, for invading armies arrive, the people leave the countryside and come to the citadel. That's what it what it means, essentially. Mm. And we came across uh, news accounts that the, the, the citadel in Irbil was essentially now being depopulated um, as part of an effort to designate it a, a world heritage site. Um, it had been populated with uh, refugee, internal refugees from Iraqi Kurdistan fleeing the war, they were all shoved aside into neighboring territory, given a certain amount of land to sort of fend for themselves so that the place was essentially depopulated. And the paradox we were interested in analyzing was how um, this place of refuge right, had to essentially be emptied in order to meet the requirements of making it into a world heritage site. And that led us into this conversation about the ways in which um, people involved in the broader global humanitarian order talk about architecture, talk about these places, talk about urbanism, talk about et cetera. And very quickly, we then landed on the better shelter and realized this is this is the case mm. that we the case study we need to sort of look at in order to really analyze the ways in which people involved in this kind of work. Um, um, explain themselves to themselves. In other words, rationalize their own project. Mm. Yeah. I know you said that you're probably in the minority uh, with this critique. Mm -hmm. um, are there others that agree with you, though? Have you have you heard from people who, um, for one reason or another, think that this this is a, the the right way to look at this? Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, but to be perfectly honest with you, I know most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it hasn't been out that long. It hasn't been reviewed. I'm hoping that someone will, uh, that that may happen. But um, um, I, the, the serious answer is that what we're talking about um, is not what we're saying, even though it might not sort of um, jive with the kind of majoritarian view, um, I think is very much in sync with what serious scholars of the present humanitarian order are thinking about the order itself. And so whether they had the idea or think it's a good idea to sort of analyze that process through the ways in which rightless relief is normalized in the form of better shelters is another story, right? But, but the broad argument is one that meshes very well with what others are saying. Uh, there, is a, a, there are a series of really important scholars on the planet today who have been making similar arguments to ours. We, we think we're in good company. Hmm.
Anything else you'd like to add about, um, you know, other takeaways that you hope people take from the book or, um, you know, other avenues that you think people could look into related to the subject? Anything you want. Basically, you open floor. Yeah. Oh, I think there's one last takeaway here, which is about how how is this happening and why? And what some really important scholars in, in the present are suggesting is that our relation to the plight of others um, has made a pretty significant trans in the way that we we think about our relationship to the plight of others has undergone a pretty significant historical change in the last 50 years. Um, the humanitarian imperative, um, as it kind of was understood in modernity, was that you have an obligation because you're okay, right? Sort of, um, you know, kind of like, you know, it, it, my generation was always told you have to eat your dinner because there are starving children in X, Y, or Z. Sure, yes. And so there's a kind of moral imperative that comes with um, um, that that reasoning, which is speaking about justice, right? There's a kind of lack of distributive justice. And so because it isn't it isn't happening, right? Because people in some other part of the world may not have enough while you're at, while you enjoy superabundance. In effect, you have a moral obligation to act in particular ways that don't waste, and that then maybe go on to do other things, right? Sure. Um, the transformation that's been studied by historians, sociologists, and others basically is that um, today um, the kind of moral reasoning has changed, and it has to do with the degree to which it essentially. Uh, makes me feel good mm. to be engaged in this kind of action, and the degree, and in that process, um, the claims and the rights of others are essentially no longer being placed in political terms. Right? Let's say I am a refugee in Kenya. Right? Um, the obligation to assist or to be involved in some ways not it is not because they have rights, um, but instead. The argument has been transmuted to one about trauma, in essence, that you must do it because their own affective life has been changed, and um, and it would make you feel good to alleviate the trauma of someone else. And so there's a kind of reward mm. dynamic that's entered into the ways in which we think about humanitarianism. I will not help unless it makes me feel good. Oh, that's fascinating. And I think... The global shelter imaginary is very much connecting to this kind of ethos on the planet today um, concerning um, uh, this change in the way that we understand our obligation towards others. Wow. I would ask you why you think that is, but that could be probably another episode. Yeah, happy to come back. Yeah. <laughs> we, can make it, we can make it a weekly thing. That's fascinating. Thank you very much, Thank you. Professor Monk. It was really great having you on the show. It was great to be here. Um, tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive Producer, Vice President for Communications, Laura Jack. Audio Engineering by Brian Ness. Logo Art by Catrail Pritz. Research Assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.